this morning is a morning of horrible transitions. Uh, because we have to go from commissioning graduates to me preaching from 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Uh, and then we go from me preaching from 1 Corinthians 14 to communion. And for as much as I tried, I could not figure out good transitions to go from each of these things. But they do flow-ish, because this is the first transition, and now I've transitioned. <laughs> first Corinthians 14 is what we're in today. We started at the beginning of April, and now we're continuing on the passage here in the beginning of May as we talk about a bunch of other stuff in April. Um, I was starting to get to know a pastor once, uh, and so I went out, had lunch with him. He's a younger guy. I wanted to encourage him in his ministry. So we had lunch, and then I asked him if he had ever driven around his town that he was in uh, and prayed for it, prayed for the ministry. And he said, no. I said, well, can we do it together? He said, sure. So he jumped in my, my car, and uh, I volunteered to drive and started driving through town, and I volunteered to start praying as we were going down Main Street. I started praying. All of a sudden, I heard these sounds next to me. Startled, I looked over, and he was chanting. Some sort of chanting with syllables I could not recognize coming out of his mouth next to me while I was praying. I didn't know what to do, so I just kept praying. Uh, and we drove through the town, and then I stopped. I got to the end of what I wanted to tell Jesus, and I stopped, and he started praying in English, and I was silent, and we drove through past the other churches and the schools and the businesses, and he stopped praying, so I jumped in and started praying. Immediately when I started praying, he started chanting again. I'd never experienced that before. And, and truthfully, it was very distracting for me as I was trying to focus on praying to God to have this going on over there. Uh, he came from what we would term a charismatic background. Uh, and he probably would have been claimed to have been praying in tongues. I'm not here right now to say whether he was or he wasn't. I'm here to share a story of what happened to me. I've told this story to many different people. Everyone I've told has had different reactions to it. Some people are not faced. They're like, eh, okay. Some people are freaked out. Like, what? Some people might start going through all the biblical proof on why that guy was not speaking in tongues and should have not have been doing that. Other people might be overjoyed to see a man of God who has such a close relationship with the Holy Spirit. It's amazing the different reactions to this story. So many different viewpoints on this issue. We live in a changing world. We do, especially here in America. We live in a changing world, and America is becoming more and more pagan. And while all parts of the Bible are applicable at all times, I believe that 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to chapter 14 will become especially important as we try to live faithfully in a society that is against God. 
1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14, as we've been talking about it, he's been talking about the gifts of the Spirit and how God has given us his Spirit and these gifts to help us in a life, living a life in a society that is against God. And Scripture tells us he's given all these gifts to help us live in a life that is in a world against God. In March, in March, we began 1 Corinthians 14, and we discussed the prophet and how God has given the prophet to strengthen, encourage, and comfort the people of God in the Christian life. We talked about the roles of the prophet and how the pastor gets to play that role so often and the joy and the hardship of that. Today, because we're going through 1 Corinthians 14, I'm going to take my life in my hands and I'm going to talk about tongues today. Most preachers would just skip over this passage. But we're going to dive in. Let's read the passage. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 6 to 19 is what we're in. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds such as the pipe or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I'm a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager for the gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you're praising God in the spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving since they don't know what you're saying? You are giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Before I jump in, will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for all parts of your word, even the, those that uh, make us uncomfortable. Lord, I ask that you'd give me strength in order to preach your word as it says and not in as people might want. Lord, I ask that through it we would see you for who you are and how you've planned things. And instead of focusing on our own pet beliefs, I pray that we would exalt you as the God that you are and we would fall in awe, fall in awe of you even more. Teach us your ways, Lord. As I'm up here, Lord, I ask that I would decrease and that you would increase. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Thanks, Father. Amen. I've got a lot of ground to cover and not much time. Today's going to be more of an academic sermon, so I'm sorry. Um, so hang on while we can. Uh, Barrett, not Barrett, Bastion. Sorry, I just called you by the little brother's name. Did you click off of the Proclaim program? Because it's not 
There we go. Cool. All right. Today we're going to talk about the why, the what, and the how. We're going to talk about why are we talking about this. We're going to talk about what are we talking about and how will we respond to what we're talking about. First, the why. Why in the world are we talking about this? In today's world, there are two main distinctions in the church. I'm not talking about denominations. There are millions of different denominations. But if you stack up all the denominations up into one nice little pile, there's two main distinctions that go between all of the denominations. All of the denominations split on this one issue. And that this issue wreaks havoc in a church's unity. I'm talking about cessationism and continuationism. Did you all click off of proclaim again? No. Then, huh? Okay. Cessationism and continuationism. Cessationism is the belief that certain gifts of the Spirit ceased after the time of the apostles. The gifts of the Spirit they talk about is the sign gifts. These sign gifts are normally defined as speaking in tongues, prophecy, and healing. That's one side of the issue. The other side of the issue is called continuationism, and it's the belief that these sign gifts have not ceased. Like I said, this is more academic than they normally get into. I normally don't throw out these $50 million terms with multiple syllables that we all look at and say, huh, what in the world is that saying? But they're important for the discussion today. Now, if you've studied these issues yourself, some of you might have, and many of you might not have, there, you know there are many different subdivisions in these groups. Uh, including what's called third-wave Pentecostalism on one end and full cessationism on the other end and lots of different stuff in between. I'm not going to go into all those subdivisions. They don't concern us today. We're just going to talk about the main two distinctions because they will suffice for us. Churches like ours um, in here in Calvary Bible Church, Bible churches, historically have been known as cessationist churches. But I use the term historically very loosely because cessationism was not taught in the early church. It wasn't. You can look through all the church writings and it didn't, this theology did not appear until 1,500 years after Christ in the days of the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, all those guys. So we have 1,500 years of no theology about cessationism, and then 500 years now with a theological camp that agrees with cessationism. During the Protestant Reformation, many people were beginning to read their Bible for the first time for themselves. They'd been stuck in the Roman Catholic Church that, that taught them at this time, don't read your Bible, don't do it. Come to the church, hear the priest talk to you, and most of the time it was in Latin, so they didn't hear it, understand it at all. So there were a lot of people at this time, they were, beginning, they were getting their own Bible in their own language, they were reading it, and they were noticing that the Roman Catholic Church was doing things that were explicitly against Scripture. They were noticing ways that the Roman Catholic Church was trying to gain wealth. One of the things they were doing against Scripture, they were trying to gain wealth through mandating religious rituals, like indulgences where if you sinned, there was a certain amount of money you'd have to pay to buy your forgiveness from the Roman Catholic Church, different things like that. And so people said, that's not right, that's unbiblical. They were leaving the Roman Catholic Church by the droves. The Roman Catholic Church didn't want this. So they sat up around all their, their priests and their bishops and all that and said, 
what can we do to prove to the masses that the Spirit of God resides in our midst? So, they started claiming miracles to prove that they possess the Spirit of God. These miracles were lots of different types. One of the most crazy of them were there were were statues outside of the Roman Catholic Church and inside the Roman Catholic Church that were crying blood. And the Roman Catholic bishops would say, hey, look, this is a sign of, of all the saints in heaven crying because of so many people losing, leaving the faith. You need to come back. Look at this miracle that's going on. This is, this is established fact that they claimed this, that this happened. And it is established fact that people tested those tears of blood from the statues and it turned out to be cherry juice. The Protestant reformers were appalled at this. And they reacted against the hyper-spiritual claims of the Roman Catholic Church. And they said that they didn't want to do anything that smelt like the papacy, their terms. So they studied the Bible and they, they created this theology that all sign gifts had ceased. So that those people who were still uh, young in their faith would not be pulled back to the Roman Catholic Church. Because the reformers said, no, God doesn't work that way anymore, so don't follow those charlatans, as they would say it. Follow what we know is true beyond a shadow of a doubt. The teaching of the reformers persisted for the next 250 years through the settlement of the New World, America as we know it, and a few revivals that happened, the first and second Great Awakenings. Both happened in the United States and in England. The main preachers of that time, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, and Charles Wesley, uh, John Wesley and Charles Wesley, the brothers, they were all basically cessationists. They saw some miracles happen during those Reformation times, but, but they were very leery of them because whenever they referred to them, they always referred vaguely, very vaguely, but fearfully to the excesses of the Roman Catholic Church and said, we don't want to have anything to do with that because we know all the false teaching that was going on at that time. In the, late, in the 1800s into the early 1900s, what's known as the missionary movement happened. From the first and second great awakenings in the United States and England, people started sending missionaries around the world. In the 1800s, is known as the great missionary movement, where people were leaving and going to Africa and Asia and South America, all these places who had never heard the gospel. Cessationism ceased to be a hot topic during that time because everyone was focused on the gospel and sharing the gospel. And as missionaries went around the world, they started seeing amazing wonders in these third world countries as God is working to spread the gospel and bring authority to the word of God. Then, though, as missionaries were going and spreading the gospel around the world, missionaries were also interacting with certain theologies coming out of Germany at this time called liberalism, where the Germans and a lot of the people that around there were saying, you know what, the Bible's not the word of God. We shouldn't trust it. We should trust other things instead, like our feelings, like whatever happens to us spiritually and emotionally, like our intellect. There's different avenues that happened at that time of always to disprove the Bible. And some of the missionaries who traveled around the world picked up some of that and brought the liberalism back to the United States. In the mid-1900s, good solid churches put down some roots in the Bible against this liberal teaching, discrediting the Bible. And they revived a lot of the teaching of the Protestant Reformation, including the teaching of cessationism. 
But in the mid-1900s, as, Protest- as fundamentalism and holding up the Bible and the, the, the Reformation teachings were becoming more and more established, there were several churches that were reacting against the secessionist doctrine for many different reasons and embracing what's known as continuationism, saying that the Bible doesn't teach the ceasing of gifts. The continuationists and the cessationists, it's very hard to say fast, kept reacting against each other in the past 70 years has been this motley reaction back and forth, back and forth between these two camps. The cessationists became more and more against the things of the Spirit so that many churches who who don't believe these sign gifts have continued don't even speak of the Holy Spirit because they don't want to have anything to do with that side. They've removed themselves so much from fellow believers in Christ. They don't even speak of the Holy Spirit. They look with dismay on anything that is emotional because our faith is illogical, they say. It's found in what we know. The continuationists, on the other side, in reaction, become more and more embracing of the things of the Spirit so that there are many churches who are continuationist churches that they don't even open the Bible anymore in their churches, but focus only on the outpouring of the Spirit, even when that outpouring is clearly against the Bible. The problem with the divisions in the churches today on this issue, especially in speaking of these sign gifts, is that The doctrines that are taught in the different churches are reactions. They're reactive doctrines. And whenever anyone creates a doctrine as a reaction against something, a monster is created and we're not to befriend monsters. Don't do it. The Bible is not a reaction. It is not a reaction. It is the inspired word of God that has been passed from God to people through human agents who were guided along by his spirit to teach us truth. It is not a reaction. It is a truth to be studied and believed. And when we react against something else, we will unintentionally and sometimes intentionally ignore truth that the Bible clearly says when that truth is very similar to beliefs that we're reacting against. Today, I'm speaking to people who sit on both sides of the issue before us. There are two camps in this church, clearly divided camps. I'm grateful that those camps do not sit on one side of the aisle or the other. It is interspixed, which is good. Some of you may not know that you're sitting next to someone who believes differently than you on this topic. (laughs) Church split happening right now. I ask that as we study this, that you hear me out and see what the words of the Bible say instead of what you have been taught by a doctrine that is a reaction. Let us come together on what the Bible says rather than on what has been told. We okay with that? All right. Why are we talking about this? We are talking about this because the Bible talks about it. And we are a Bible church, so we talk about what the Bible talks about, even when it makes us uncomfortable. What are we talking about? In a phrase, we are talking about today, specifically, speaking in tongues. 
As I said, speaking in tongues is known as a sign gift. Theologians created this classification because they thought the, the gifts, spiritual gifts of healing, prophecy, and speaking in tongues were more miraculous than the gifts of wisdom, faith, and other gifts of the Spirit. I say that's hogwash. They are all miraculous, but I shouldn't rag on the theologians too much because Paul calls speaking in tongues and prophecy signs. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 22, he says, Tongues, then, are a sign, not for believers but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers but for believers. The unmentioned word there is a sign. Scripturally, there is a role for miraculous signs and gifts, scripturally. Signs and gifts were a huge part of Jesus' ministry, and they were part of his ministry for a specific purpose. He did not go and travel around Judea just doing miracles on a whim. He did them for a reason. In John chapter 5, the Pharisees come against Jesus, and they start questioning Jesus' authority to teach uh, his, his very identity. And Jesus told them there were five things that testified about who he was. The first is his own words. The second was John the Baptist. The third uh, we're not going to talk about the third yet. The fourth is God the Father, and the fifth is Scripture. The third one is found in John chapter 5, verse 36, where Jesus says, I have a testimony or weighter than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I am doing testify that the Father has sent me. Those works, those signs and miracles are a proof, a sign of who Jesus was. His miracles were designed to testify to who he was. Everything that he did, every miracle that he performed had been prophesied about hundreds of years before. So anyone who looked at what he did and saw what scripture said could have confidence that this man who was not very good to look at was in fact the Messiah come to save the world from their sins. Sign gifts. It's something that is done to prove something else something that is done to point the way to something else. The author of Hebrews talks about sign gifts in Hebrews chapter two, verses one to four. Hebrews two, one to four, the author of Hebrews says, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard, and God also testified to it. How? By signs, wonders, various miracles, and by gifts of the Spirit distributed according to his will. The gifts of the Spirit were distributed to point to our amazing salvation. They testify to our salvation. They testify to the truth of the Word of God. If you think about the apostles, traveling throughout Asia Minor after Jesus died, was buried, rose, and ascended to heaven. They're going around preaching the gospel. And all the time they're preaching the gospel is accompanied by signs, wonders, to give proof to the truth of what they're preaching. Acts chapter 2 talks about the early church and what is going on at this time. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer, all the things that we do. Everyone was filled with awe, at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. 
And all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. People saw the works of God through the gifts of the Spirit and the work of the church, and God used that to bring people to the church. My sister's staring at me because I went through those verses really fast. (laughs) Write it down. Read it. The gifts of the Spirit testify to our salvation. They testify to the truth of the Word of God. With that perspective in mind, there's an interesting ebb and flow that happens to spiritual gifts as you study church history from the time of the apostles until now where the truth of God's word and the truth of the gospel are doubted, if you study it throughout church history, signs and miracles increase. But where the truth of God's word and the gospel are accepted, signs and miracles ebb. You see it throughout history, this happening. As you look at different cultures throughout history, this happening, which is why we hear so many accounts in third world countries where the Bible has never been seen of an increase of God's gifts because he's bringing proof to the truth of what he is saying. But here in the U.S., until recent times, those gifts have not been normative. They've been there, they just haven't been normative. I believe, though, that this might be changing. This is where I start getting on shaky ground. I believe this might be changing in our society because our society is becoming more and more pagan, and the truth of God's word and the gospel are being actively rejected by people in our world, so they need the proof of who God is and what he's doing. Speaking in tongues is a sign gift. It is a sign gift that is produced by the Spirit. Pretty self-explanatory sentence, I prefer the self-explanatory concept because it's listed as one of the gifts that the Spirit gives. 1 Corinthians 14, 2. Anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. I have to point this out, though, because one of the reactive theologies against cessationism is the belief that everyone who has the Holy Spirit will speak in tongues. It's one of the reactive theologies. But Paul disproves this multiple times, one of which is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 29 to 31, where he says, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret, now eagerly desire the greater gifts. All of those, the, the, the grammar and the wording that is used by Paul is, is something, we don't really have it in English, but the grammar that's used is, is something that always comes to a no, no, no. Do I interpret? No, of course not. That's the grammar and syntax he's using. These are in-the-face statements against everyone having these gifts, but only those whom the Spirit has granted that gift will have the gift of speaking tongues or interpreting all that sort of stuff. Another reactive theology is that speaking in tongues can be taught. Many of the churches who teach that everyone who has the Spirit will therefore speak or pray in tongues, some of them actually have teaching sessions about how to speak in tongues. And I've watched some of these, they're very interesting. But the problem with this is that the gifts of the Spirit are not taught, they are given. They are granted by a loving God to individuals for his glory 
and for the building up of his church. It's not something that can be taught. I think about a man by the name of Simon. He was a sorcerer in the New Testament in Acts. He heard about Jesus from Philip. He believed, got saved, then followed Philip everywhere because he, as a sorcerer, was amazed by the miracles and signs he saw Philip doing at this early church time. Peter and John come to town. They preach the gospel more fully to people, pray for them to receive the Spirit as they did at that time, and then Simon sees the Spirit being given by the laying on of hands and goes up to Peter and John and says, hey, can I pay you money to teach me how to do this? And Peter looks at him and says, may your money perish with you because you could thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. If we come up to someone and we want to be taught to do with gift of the Spirit, we're in line with Simon the Sorcerer to think that the gift of God can be bought with money. You say, but I'm not giving money. It's, it's the same thing. Buying doesn't happen just with money. It's a, I want this from you, therefore give it to me. The gifts of God, including speaking tongues, is not something to be taught or acquired. It is a gift that is given for the glory of God and the building of his church. Anyone who is speaking in tongues because they have been taught to, unfortunately, is not actually speaking in tongues. God can use it to encourage an individual because he sees the heart, but what they are doing is not the spiritual gift that Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 14 because it's been given by a man to a man, not by God to them. So what then is speaking in tongues? As I said, speaking in tongues is a sign gift produced by the Spirit for praise and prayer to God. There is a reactive theology by the cessationists that speaking in tongues is used for evangelism. They say that God grants someone the ability to speak in a language that they've not spoken before. We have some of recordings of this happening in missionary stories around the world where people were able to understand someone else speaking and they were able to speak in a language they've never learned. That's great, it's a miracle, but it's not, biblically speaking, what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 14 as speaking in tongues. Because if you look through the Bible, speaking of tongues is never mentioned alongside evangelism. It never is. The first mention of speaking in tongues is in Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is given uh, with wind and fire. In Acts chapter 2, verses 4 to 7, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't these who are speaking Galileans? And then they start listing all the nations that were there of, of hearing their language in their native tongue. And they say, hey, what we hear them saying, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. So, on the one hand, you have Christians who have just experienced something that they've never experienced before, the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. And, and that experience for, it brings a deep joy that overwhelms them and erupts from their soul, and they shout the wonders of God in a language that is not theirs. Unfortunately, we forget that joy too often in our own lives, but they have that joy, and they're erupting from that joy, praising God in a language that is not theirs. On the other hand, we hear people hearing those praises in their own languages. Scripture never says that the languages that they're shouting the praises of God in is actually the language that they hear. I believe it is, 
but there's some people that say, you know, God could have miraculously translated it for them. Doesn't matter. People are praising God in other languages. People are hearing those praises in their languages. And then after this praise time in the middle of the streets of Jerusalem, Peter stands up in this multicultural crowd that is before him and starts preaching the gospel, and he preaches it in Aramaic, in the language of his culture, not in the language of the people who are coming to him. He did not speak in tongues in order to preach. Well, he could have, but he didn't. The other instances in Acts of speaking in tongues is immediately after salvation. Same type of thing that happens in Acts chapter two. Acts chapter 10 is one of these instances where people accept Christ and they're overwhelmed with joy and they erupt from the innermost parts of their soul and praises to God in a language that is not their own. It wasn't evangelism that was happening at that time. It was the result of evangelism. It's interesting that in 1 Corinthians 14, 18, Paul confesses that he speaks in tongues. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all y'all. However, we never see him use that gift in his missionary trips. There would have been times where it would have been great if he had used that gift, like in Lystra, but he didn't. 1 Corinthians 14, Paul continually equates speaking in tongues with praying and praising God. 1 Corinthians 14, 2, for anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 14, 13 to 17, for this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, I also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you're praising God in the spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving since they don't know what you're saying? You're giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. Speaking in tongues is for praying and praising God. It's not for evangelism. But if it's not for evangelism, it's not for prophecy either. There's lots of people who talk about speaking in tongues and getting interpreted in there. They've got a message from God through this speaking of tongues. But for the same proofs I've just given, it can't be for prophecy either. If it's not for evangelism, it's not for prophecy. Well, pastor, are you saying then this speaking in tongues is just babbling nonsense to God? No, I'm not saying that. Incidentally, language is defined as a system of communication. There are over 6,500 languages in the world. Most of them sound like babbling to me. But they are a system of communication, even though it sounds like babbling to me. So when we're talking about tongues, I am speaking of a communication with God, which 1 Corinthians 14 is demanding is happening. A communication of God is happening. It's just that everyone else can't understand it. Peter, well then, are you speaking of a heavenly language that we have been given that then is gone, goes directly to God and can't be hit by anyone else because it's a heavenly language that we're speaking? No, I'm not speaking of that because 1 Corinthians 13 says speaking in tongues is going to cease in heaven in eternity. 1 Corinthians 13, 8, love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. He's talking about this eternity that's happening I went way too far. There we go. This eternity, when eternity comes, as we talked about in 1 Corinthians 13, when eternity comes, certain gifts will pass away, and speaking in tongues is one of them. So if this is a heavenly language, we'd be speaking it there, but we're not. Something else is happening. I believe what's happening is it's tied to Romans chapter 8, verse 26 to 27. 
and, and many people believe with, agree with me on this. Paul writes, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans, and he who searches our hearts knows the minds of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people according with the will of God. In cultures where the truth of God's word and the gospel are not accepted, God allows them to speak the words of the Spirit, either through praise or prayer in a way that is miraculous as a sign to those around them of who God is and what he is doing. But also, individually, not just as in those cultures, but individually, during times of great distress, when an individual's faith in the truth of God's word or the gospel is shaken, God grants that person the gift of speaking the words of the Spirit in a way that solidifies their faith miraculously and sometimes can result in a depth of praise from the innermost parts of our being as seen in Acts. When we talked about the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we talked about how the gifts of Spirit are not one and done things. It's not like God gives us a gift and we have that gift for the rest of our life. He gives us that gift, takes it up, gives us another one, takes it up, gives us another one to be used in those instances, in moments for his glory and the edification of his church. There are sometimes he gives the gift of speaking in tongues when it's needed for his glory and the edification of church to build us up to him. What is speaking in tongues? It is a sign gift produced by the Spirit for praise and prayer of God, which can be put into intelligible words. They are able to be understood. The benefit of speaking of tongues is in the translation. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 13, for this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. Now, I've already gotten academic. I'm sorry. Are we all still with me? Okay, I'm gonna get a little bit more academic. The word here that it's used for interpret is not the normal word in Greek for interpret. There are other words in the New Testament, there's other words in Greek that solidly mean interpret. You speak one language and it's interpreted to another. That is not what this word is. It is actually leans more towards put into words, is what this word is. There was a historian by the name of Josephus. This is his more modern works. He wrote a lot, a little bit after the time of Christ, about what is happening in this time. And he describes the wonders of Herod's palace. And he says that, these, that the description of this palace is impossible to put into words. Same word that's happening in 1 Corinthians 14 for translate. Now we don't talk about, when we talk about the describing Calvary Bible Church, we don't talk about how, hey, I need to translate the description of the building to you. That's not what we say. We say I need to put the description into words. That's what's happening here. Um, Philo, this is a copy of Eusebius, who is another historian, uh, but he has some of Philo's writings in here. Philo was a theologian at the time of Christ, and he wrote a lot of commentaries about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, all those, and he, as he's writing about Exodus, he talks about Moses and Aaron, and he talks about Aaron's role as Moses' mouthpiece, and Aaron, he says, is charged with putting into words what Moses found overwhelming or difficult. Same word that's going on. Aaron isn't to translate Moses' words. We know that's not what's happening. Aaron was to put into words what Moses could not say. So when someone is praying, oh, there you go, Moses and Aaron. When someone is praying, 
overwhelmed with emotion, not knowing what to pray so that the Spirit is interceding on his behalf. He is to pray that he can put all of those emotions into words for the benefit of his mind and for the benefit of building up of the church. That's what's going on in 1 Corinthians 14. As we read earlier, 1 Corinthians 14, 16, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but also pray with my understanding. I'll put those into words. I will sing with my spirit, but I'll also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you're praising God in the spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of inquirer, who's not understanding what's going on, how can he say amen to your thanksgiving so they don't know what you are saying? Being spiritual. There's lots of people who say, oh, I'm speaking in tongues, I'm being spiritual. Being spiritual consistently throughout Scripture, when we think of this idea of what being spiritual is, being spiritual occurs when the Holy Spirit controls both the spirit and the mind, not just the spirit. We are, uni- we are one person. We're not a dichotomous thing. If only the mind is active, everything remains theoretical. But if only this heart is active, we lie open to self-deception. But if both the mind and the heart, the spirit, are open to the spirit. The result builds up the community and bears fruit for the love of the other. So why are we talking about this? Because the Bible talks about this. What are we talking about? We're talking about speaking in tongues, which are sign gifts produced by the spirit for praise and prayer. They're able to be intelligible, to be able to be put into words. How we'll respond. In the next 30 seconds, I have to wrap this sermon up in application because I'm technically eight minutes over already. I know, heavens to Betsy. It's going to take me a few minutes longer than 30 seconds, I'm sorry. All right, how will we respond? All this theoretical stuff they've just thrown at you, delving into church history and Greek syntax and words and all that sorts of stuff. How in the world are we supposed to put this into practice? First, tongues are for our private devotional times. Paul clearly says it. That's how God designed it, unless they're able to be put into intelligible words so that people can understand and say amen. Paul says obliquely in 1 Corinthians 14, 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. At this time, when they talk about the church, they're not talking about church, they are, but it's more than just church, they're talking about whenever believers are present. That's when church is happening. Later in the letter, Paul will write this. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn, word of instruction, revelation, tongue, interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. They must put it into words. If there is no interpreter, no one to put that into words, the speaker should keep quiet in church and speak to himself and God. If he does not know how to put this depth of the motion into words, he's got to be quiet. That's what Paul says, leave it for private devotion time. Tongues are for private devotion times. If God gives the gift, it is not for a prayer ride through town with a friend. Which brings us to the next point. Edification is for public. God designed our times together as a church for mutual edification. It's for each of us to build up the people around us. Paul says, In verse 12, so it is with you. Since you are eager for the gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. We interact in a way with others that they can understand and say, that's right, I agree, I'm gonna live that way. Thanks for boosting me up to God. I would read 1 Corinthians 14, 15 to 16 again to you, uh, but I already did it multiple times. 
But he says we're supposed to do things in a way that they can say amen to our thanksgiving. So they know what we're saying. So when we come together with the church, our focus is on, not on what can I get out of this? So much of what Paul is talking about, the spiritual gifts, our focus is not on what can I get out of this? That's the wrong focus. We're supposed to have the focus, what can I do to build up the person next to me? Some days are hard for that. Some days we don't want to go to church just because of everything we've gone through. And we may not. Unfortunately, the church suffers because of that. Other days we do. We get up the nerve, we get up the strength, and we stagger into church having been through a blender of a week. We come and we feel like we're missing body parts. Our emotions are all over the place. We come for encouragement because we need encouragement. And by God's grace, gratefully, he gives us that encouragement that week for his glory and on his honor. But even when we're in that state of being discombobulated and we're all over the place and we feel like we have nothing to give, we are still able to be a blessing to others. We're still able to have that focus of, yes, I got nothing and I need help, but it's not about me. It's about the person sitting next to me. And through God's grace to us, as he ministers to us through our emotional and spiritual depletion, we're able to turn around in our brokenness and fill up someone else. That's the body of Christ at work. That's what Paul says. The Corinthians were so self-focused. The Corinthians were saying, look at the gift that I have. Be in awe of my gift. The Corinthians were saying, oh, I'm so horrible. I need filling up. Let me fill up. And Paul says, it's not about you, Corinthians. It's about your brothers and sisters in Christ. So use your gifts, whatever they are, not to fill you up, but to build them up. God designed our time together as a church for mutual edification. Finally, whether at home or in public, God is to be praised. It's been awesome going through for me and studying these gifts of the Spirit that God has given. It's things I knew, but being able to dive into them myself and explore all of the intricacies of them. God has given us gifts to lift us up to him, to encourage his church, and to share our faith. He's given us tools to use, both publicly and privately. And when we realize everything that he has done to equip us for everyday life. Everything that he has done to equip us that we can glorify him through our actions and words. Everything that he has done to equip us that we might share the amazing truth of his gospel. When we realize that yes, he died to save our soul, but through his amazing grace, not only did he save our soul, but he equips us for every single day that we are living, no matter what that day brings. When we realize he is everything he has done to equip us, we will overflow with praise to him. But too often we don't spend time in reflecting on how God has equipped us to live today. But he has. Every single day we wake up and we open our eyes, we can say, I know God has and will equip me to live this day and he'll give me the exact gift I need to make it through today. And we'll overflow with praise to him. And we'll spend our time praising him. Instead of spending our time being nervous about everything we have to do today or being nervous about everything we have to say or all these sorts of things, we can be praising him, not be nervous because we know beyond a shadow of doubt by his glory and his honor, 
praise to him, he has equipped me today. And even when we don't know how to praise him, he's equipped us for that too. Well, we've talked about the why, we've talked about the what, we've talked about the how. As always, as I said throughout 1 Corinthians, if I've talked about anything that you don't understand, anything that rubs you wrong, anything that you're grumbling inside and saying, that guy's a heretic, please just talk to me. Make an appointment. We'll talk. We'll study the Word of God together because we want to find out what it says, not what we say. But in keeping with praising God today,